Uh, you've heard me say that you will never hear a sports analogy, a sports illustration come out of my mouth during a sermon. Well, um, I lied. Um, this is probably the only time because um, I know nothing about football, except I do know that it's a team sport. Um, don't ask me who plays for who. I'm really bad at that. Pat tried early on in our marriage to instruct me to no avail. Uh, but I do know it's a team sport. So if one of the players decides to be a prima donna, to make a name for themselves, to stand out amongst the rest of their teammates, then the whole game collapses and they don't win the match. They don't win the game. The goal is to work together as a team. The same thing holds true in an orchestra. If you've got this amazing symphony going on and the piccolo decides to make a name for himself, then all anybody hears is the piccolo and there's complete dissonance amongst the rest of this amazing symphony and you're just kind of hyper-focusing on the piccolo and wishing that they'd just be quiet. And the same is true in the stage or in a movie. If you've got one actor who wants to really grab the limelight, then the story gets lost because you're just going, can they get off the stage already? It's something along the lines of what Paul is talking about in this letter to the church at Philippi. He loves this community. This is a dear, dear community to him. I remember in the Acts of the Apostles, he goes and he meets Lydia and the women by the water. And that's the genesis of this Christian community. He stays in her house and then there's the, uh, the, there's the jailer, there's the slave girl. They're the genesis of this small Christian community in this Roman outpost, which is a colony in Philippi. And so his letter of one, is one of cherishing. But what's happened is that there's been an argument between two women in the church, and we know this from chapter 4. And their names are Euodia and Syntyche. And their disagreement is threatening to pull apart the entire community. See, it's, it's kind of like the football game or the symphony or the stage play or the movie. There's dissonance and so the story of Christ is not fully being told because the emphasis is on what's going on with Euodia and Syntyche. The story of Christ's humility and self-sacrificial love. The goal is not, the game is not being won. The goal to spread that good news has been mired because of what's going on in the community. In other words, and Paul is saying, Everybody needs to be focused on the same goal, 
on the same object. And the same object is in actual fact Christ himself. Because if the focus is there, then all of the rest of the stuff falls by the wayside. We're just to be focused on Christ himself. And we've seen, haven't we, when there's a single focus for people, all of the rest of the junk just falls away. When people are rescuing people from floodwaters, they're not asking if they're Republican or Democrat. They're not looking at the color of their skin. They're forming a human chain to rescue somebody who is drowning. There's one focus. The rest of the stuff is just not important. Well, you see, as Christians, we have one focus. It's the love of God in Christ Jesus. It's to make Christ the center. And we're the human chain that's going out from Christ, linked arms with one common goal to rescue those who are drowning. In the darkness and sin without knowing the light of Christ. But in Philippi, the focus has gone off of Jesus and onto this disagreement. Well, evidently, it's not about doctrine, because when there's an issue of doctrine, Paul can get quite snippy. He was very upset with the church in Corinth. In fact, he says, I had to write a really stern letter to you. And then my visit, you know, he's kind of come out with the rod because they've got doctrine wrong. But that's not his tone at all in this letter to the church in Philippi. He knows that deep down they all have a heart and a love for Christ. It's just got off track a little bit. Because he says to whoever this companion is in chapter 4, he asks them, loyal comrade, true companion in the gospel, help these women since they've contended with Paul. In other words, that's a really strong word. They've struggled with him in the face of of persecution, they have spread the gospel side by side with Paul. And so in love, he's calling them back out of disagreement and back into unity. And he loves them so much that his heart's breaking for the community and for them. And so he gently asks this question of the entire community, these questions. Do you find encouragement from Christ and from being part of the body of Christ, which is the church? Does his love for you provide consolation in your lives? Is your love therefore growing for your fellow Christians? 
Do you remember that we all share in the same spirit, the Holy Spirit who lives in us through baptism? Are we therefore allowing the Spirit to work in our lives together towards the same goal? Are we in effect showing forth the fruit of the Spirit in our lives? And he says, have you not received compassion and sympathy from God in Christ Jesus? He says, if all these things are true, then my fellow Christians, my beloved ones, therefore we should be encouragers and not criticizers. We should bring consolation rather than distress. We should not grieve the Holy Spirit but live in the Spirit's unity. And we should be compassionate and sympathetic to each other rather than hard-hearted and unkind. In other words, he says, in this family that is the very body of Christ, we're to have the same mind, brought together to have the same mind and the same love doing nothing from selfish ambition or pride, but in humility regard others as better than ourselves, looking not to our own individual interests, but to the interests of others. That's the foundation of servant leadership. And we have the model of Christ himself, who on the night before he died, washed his disciples' feet, an act of humble servant leadership. Of course, we can probably all think of somebody who needs to hear this sermon right now, but the old adage is, if you're pointing one finger away from yourself to somebody else, there are three pointing back. That's the same for all of us. I count myself included in that one. N.T. Wright recalls going to lunch with a friend who'd invited about 20 or 30 people. Some of them were quite well-known public figures. As he said the grace at the start of the meal, he also said very firmly, Remember, the most interesting person in the room is the one you're sitting next to. When you're a high official, sometimes you think that you're much more important than the person sitting next to you. This man had the guts to say to all of those officials in the room, the most important person in the room is the person sitting next to you. And N.T. Wright then makes this comment, multiply that up a bit into a congregation and you'll get somewhere near what Paul is saying. The person next to us in the pew is the most interesting person in the room. But it's clearly not possible to bring about the kind of unity that Paul is talking about within the body unless our eyes are always firmly fixed on the person at the center who is Christ Jesus himself rather than ourselves or our position within any community. And it's why Paul then goes on to explain 
what that same mind that we're all to have looks like. It is indeed the mind of Christ and therefore the divine mind, the mind and heart of God himself. For Jesus is the self-revelation of God in human form. He is God from all eternity to all eternity, co-eternal with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity from before all time to beyond all time as we know it. In eternity, Jesus always existed within the Godhead. The decision to become human, to go all the way along the road to the cross, that decision was a decision not to stop being divine. It was the decision about what it really meant to be divine. That wonderful Christ hymn, as it's been known in our Philippians passage, who, though he was equal with God, did not grasp, did not hang on to that, but emptied himself. He didn't empty himself of his divinity. He, it, he emptied himself of all the rights. There was a council that dealt with that question. Jesus is, was fully human and fully divine. He did not empty himself of his divinity, but in his humility... As he came and walked amongst us, gave up his rights to that. That's the very essence of what it is to be divine. In such contrast to what we think in human terms. When we think of conquerors, of kings, of lords, of potentates, of emperors, of prime ministers, of presidents. The divine nature of being king, king of kings and lord of lords, is not by heavy-handed authority. The captain of the angel armies in that wonderful scene in Revelation on his white steed with the sword held high and on his thigh is the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords and the myriad of angel armies into the distance behind him is humble of heart and doesn't grasp onto his rights as God, but comes humbly and walks amongst us because he loves you, because he loves each and every one of you personally. He counts the hairs on your head. He knows you're going out and you're coming in. He knows what you think before you've thought it or expressed it. He loves you. That is the mind of Christ. That God himself was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The omnipotent, almighty 
God reveals the true nature of divinity on the cross where he dies under the weight of the world's evil because of self-sacrificial love. And Paul says that is to be our mind. We're to have the same mind as Christ. Our focus is on him. And that love that is ours is to flood into us and out from us. This is the mind of all who've been redeemed by this self-sacrificing, loving God. This is how Christ desires his body, the church, to be unified in him, following his example of self-sacrificial love. So, says St. Paul, If our shared life in the king brings you any comfort, if love still has the power to make you cheerful, if we really do have a partnership in the spirit, if your hearts are at all moved with affection and sympathy, then he says, make my joy complete. Bring your thinking into line with one another. And here's how you do it. Hold on to the same love. Bring your innermost lives into harmony. Fix your minds on the same object. Never act out of selfish ambition or vanity. Instead, regard everybody else as your superior. Look after each other's best interests, not your own. This is how you should think among yourselves, with the mind that you have because you belong to Messiah Jesus. May it be so. Amen.